0: Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian Giebert and Alex Giebert. Today's moment is from the richer car for three voices from The Musical Offering. Most gracious king, in deepest humility, I dedicate herewith to your majesty a musical offering, the noblest part of which derives from your majesty's own august hand. With awesome pleasure, I still remember the very special royal grace when, some time ago during my visit in Potsdam, your majesty's self deigned to play to me a theme for a fugue upon the clavier, and at the same time charged me most graciously to carry it out in your majesty's most august presence. To obey your majesty's command was my most humble duty. That is from a letter which Bach sent to Frederick the Great in Prussia after a visit there. But let's set the scene a little, let's go back in time a little. What is this royal theme that Frederick, apparently, created himself? to have Bach write a fugue upon. Well, King Frederick the Great of Prussia was a monarch who loved music, and employed at King Frederick's court at the time was Bach's own son, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach. After quite a while of the king hinting to the son, Carl Philipp Emanuel, that he should in fact have his father come up for a visit—a musical visit, of course, is what King Frederick wanted—finally, I think Carl Philipp Emanuel got the hint, and sent for his father Johann Sebastian to make a visit. Sometimes it's talked about today that Johann Sebastian Bach was not famous in his lifetime, and was only recognized later, and that is generally true and serves the purpose of the narrative when compared to other famous composers. However, it's not like he was unknown completely. Yes, he was known more as a performer, but He was known in the area for his extemporaneous fugue-making, especially, but really anything improvisatory on the keyboard. It was known that Bach excelled at this. Bach was also very interested in instrument maintenance and building, enjoying maintenance of organs and things like that, and he had previously talked with Gottfried Silbermann, a famous organ maker, and had had a sort of famous argument with Silbermann about the tuning of organs, Bach wanted something a little more well-tempered, as you might imagine. So he could go into some of these more chromatic fantasies and alterations. So he could go somewhere interesting with the music, as we know Bach liked to do. When Silbermann showed Bach the first prototype of a forte piano which was based on a very early version of the fortepiano by Italian harpsichord builder Bartomeo Cristofori. Bach was critical of Silbermann's piano, saying it was weak in the high range. Even though he liked the tone, he didn't like the action, and he had other problems with it. Silbermann apparently left in a huff, and thereafter dedicated himself, after getting over his initial annoyance, to actually fixing the stuff that Bach suggested, and came back with a second model, which Bach got to see in the court of King Frederick. So, on the pretense of inviting Bach to come visit his son, meet King Frederick, and try out this new Silbermann forte piano, Bach accepted the invitation. Here we come into the theoretical part of the story, a part that is simply a guess, but it's an interesting guess, and it was made by the composer from the Second Viennese School, Arnold Schoenberg. Here's a quote from a book of essays by Schoenberg called Style and Idea, Selected Writings of Arnold Schoenberg. Here he talks about this royal theme, which King Frederick presented to Bach, which goes like this. Schoenberg writes, Carl Philip Emmanuel knew what to do and what not to do in order to produce a theme which would not lend itself to any treatment of this kind. For this reason I believe that he, Philip Emmanuel, was the originator of the royal theme. Whether malice of his own induced him or whether the joke was ordered by the king can probably be proven only psychologically. The great king knew how one feels after winning a battle, and he wanted to see how another person behaves after losing a battle. He wanted to see the embarrassment of one who had experienced only battles which he had won. He wanted to enjoy the helplessness of the victim of his joke, when the highly praised art of improvisation could not master the difficulties of a well-prepared trap. trap it was Philip Emanuel had constructed a theme that resisted Johann Sebastian's versatility now to interject this is a theory by Schoenberg it's not known whether Carl Philip Emanuel actually wrote this theme but I love the idea that this could be true we know that King Frederick the Great was a lover of music and played instruments and things like that so it's not out of the realm of possibility that he could have invented this theme but it does But the theme does seem specifically constructed to stymie the old Bach. It's like if you could write a theme that had any chance of stumping Bach, this might be it. I don't know about this, Alex. Okay, so I completely agree with Schoenberg that it doesn't really seem like King Frederick wrote the subject. It just. I just think that the subject is too Bach like, J.S. Bach, that is, to be the work of King Frederick, who was like more modern. And I don't think really even appreciated Counterpoint. That's true. But then there's this theory by Schoenberg that Carl Philipp Emanuel, like you said, wrote this theme. I don't know. I. Well, I think maybe he did, but in order to stump Bach? I I don't either that either that's true and it didn't work or it was maybe just written in his father's style because he knew it would work. I don't know. But it it just Bach wrote chromatic fugue subjects all the time. If this was written in order to stump Bach, it was not a very good idea. <laughs> yeah, and moreover, Carl Philipp Emanuel's music doesn't sound like this very much. That doesn't mean we can assume he didn't write it and the other thing about that is if it sounds like bach we could theorize that bach himself wrote it played it for the king maybe the king played it back to him and somehow or another the king took credit for it or assumed that he had written it himself and then bach didn't want to overstep or something like that you can tell by the sort of overly eloquent flattery giving and genuflecting style that bach writes to the king in the letter that is how you talk to a king of course so in the same way if Bach had written this but then the king had ended up taking credit for it Bach would have not insisted instead he would have said something like oh great king good job writing that theme or something like that. Mhm. So mm-hmm. it could be that it is Bach and that he didn't want to overstep. Here's what I think about this. I think that maybe the king wrote the first five notes. Like maybe the king said what do you think about bum 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 and then Bach made the second half of that subject. That's one, that's my own personal theory, maybe. But now, even as I'm saying that, the construction of the first five notes is so Bach. Even that fugue subject sounds like plenty of other Bach imitative motifs. But I mean, it's so small. It was in the zeitgeist, Handel, Telemann, they were all writing weirdly expressive chromatic stuff like that first five notes. So maybe this king just gave Bach those notes yeah Bach did the rest but gave the king credit like you said Alex in a way to make sure he was happy because he was the king it's kind of like a lot of things about this musical offering work it's a wonderful enigma and so what we get from Bach is this three-part fugue which he calls a ricercar, car which is like a more general term for an imitative piece Bach sets it as a pretty standard Bach fugue. He gets to play around with it a little bit. It's not quite as strict. It's kind of long, and when he writes this letter, he includes this three-part fugue, which he improvised on the spot. And did he really remember the whole thing and then write it out later? Well, maybe. Bach was exceptional, but it could be that it was slightly different. But then he also, of course, included the rest of the musical offering, which is an unusual collection full of canons and a sonata, the famous Crab Cannon, a couple of interesting other forms, including another Reacher car for six voices, which is the thing that the king asked for. And Bach said, I can't do six on the spot, but can I get back to you on that? And that's the whole point, of course, of this musical offering. You couldn't do it on the spot, yeah. So was CPE Bach truly trying to orchestrate that scenario where his father couldn't come up with a six voice imitative fugue on the spot, and then that worked Right, because that is, that is what stumped Bach, probably because he's a perfectionist. I mean, I bet he could have sat down and tried to make something with six voices. It probably would have been interesting and cool, even if it would have had some problems and mistakes. But he wouldn't have wanted to do that in front of the king. And you can see throughout the whole thing here that he sort of tosses around all these twists and turns of the chromatic theme from the regal theme. The way that he adds Latin phrases, some of them are a little bit enigmatic, some of them are a little jokey, they might have puns. The title page, in fact, has the subtitle theme given by the king with additions, resolved in a canonic style, and it has that in Latin, and in Latin it's an acrostic of which the first letters of each word spell out a word. So see if you can figure out what that word is by listening to me say these words in Latin, try to listen for the first letter of each word. Regis Iusu Cantio et Reliqua Canonica Arte Resoluta, so it's R-I-C-E-R-C-A-R, spelling out Reacher Car. And the rest of the musical offering is, as I said, full of little enigmatic phrases. This performance of the Reacher Car for Three Voices is played by Leo von Dosselaar on a forte piano, pretty unique for Netherlands Box Society. And this forte piano is a reconstruction of one of the Silbermann forte pianos. Some of the original Silbermann forte pianos are still in existence today in Potsdam. I love both of these pieces, the Richikar for three voices and the Richikar for six, but when I want to listen to something that really gets me in the mood of this musical offering, this chromatic style, then I listen to the Richikar for three voices instead of six. I go to the one with six voices when I want something a little more complicated, but the three voice fugue is kind of perfect because it just sounds a lot more clear than a four voice fugue, for example. When you listen to a four-voice fugue, you need to listen to it many times to appreciate the interplay. When you listen to a three-voice fugue, you can kind of follow everything for the first time, especially something like this, which is just so clear. It's amazing how clear this is, even though it's so complex, chromatically. And I think a lot of that has to do with the tone of the instrument this reconstruction of the Silbermann fortepiano. You know, sometimes we look at these Netherlands Bach Society recordings and we marvel at the beauty of the instruments, the period-accurate instruments. Sometimes they are famous pieces that have been played many other times, and there might be some other recordings out there which are considered essential recordings that have been made many years ago. Sometimes it's, on the other hand, something obscure that only the Netherlands Bach Society and a couple other groups have ever tried. But, for this, there are many recordings of a musical offering. And this one, of the RichaKar for Three Voices, is definitely my favorite version. Hmm. And, first of all, we got to give credit where it's due. Leo von Dusselaar plays it amazingly. But the instrument itself is what makes this a top-tier musical offering recording. This is a reconstruction, as I said, of the original instrument. So, this is how it would have sounded to the king when Bach visited. So this Zilbermann piano is pretty close to the modern piano. It's a lot closer to the piano than it is to the harpsichord, of course. It is a piano. In this recording, we hear a little bit of dynamic possibility that you can't really achieve on a harpsichord. Which means that you have to play this instrument differently than a harpsichord. When you play the piano, you have some control over the touch sensitivity. You have a lot of control over it. And in the harpsichord, that simply doesn't happen. How loud you play a note on the harpsichord is not really in your control. I wonder if Bach considered that when he wrote the musical offering, the new possibilities of the piano. You can't really tell if he considered it, I think, just by listening. You could easily play a lot of the parts of the musical offering on other instruments which people do all the time in recordings but it's a thought experiment yeah and to get an example of extreme levels of tone variety dynamic variety and tempo variety you can look no further than the Anton Webern orchestration of the Ruchakar A6 Mm -hmm. Christian you know this yeah it's amazing And he doesn't just take these musical lines and put them on other instruments. He splits up each musical line in the middle of each phrase to throw them around to different instruments in a section. And the result is a sort of sonic kaleidoscope, basically. Yeah, you have to hear it if you haven't heard it yet. So the chromatic motion going down in the regal theme here. We've talked about that a little bit, but let's talk about some of the chromatic alterations that lead up, especially in some of the middle sections here, and that brings us to a listener comment that we had from Darcy. And at a couple moments, like around 2 minutes and 30 seconds, and 3 minutes in this recording, Darcy notes, I thought the musician was adding a modern jazz riff. Why does this piece sound so modern jazzy at various points? an interesting comment. And what makes jazz jazz is really like a huge subject, but one part of it is added chord tones and certain voice leading elements of jazz, which differ from classical music voice leading. Also, there's a reliance on seventh and ninth chords and some tritone voice leadings and some augmented shapes and things like that. There's a little bit more color added to most chords. Things are thought of a little more vertically in jazz, but again, there are voice leading rules, mm-hmm. And I think what Darcy is referring to is these notes right here. That right there, that is fairly jazzy. And what we get, we get a dominant seventh chord, which we'd, we'd expect, and a little bit of a jazz idiom. That's, that's pretty jazzy. It has to do with that augmented shape that happens right on the the sharp tone there, the F-sharp. It's kind of inevitable if you're going to have so much chromatic motion like this, something is going to sound like jazz, you know? Yeah. Yeah, in terms of jazz, that brief moment, which is not even on a beat, is an augmented triad. And it's not even that long. It's just a half a beat long. In terms of classical harmony, the most interesting thing about it is that that top note is raised, because if it wasn't, you would hear that it's just extremely ordinary. Right, that would sound like... So what Bach probably thought is that by sharpening that note, it's adding a little bit of chromatic color to that single note. That is one of the interesting moments for Darcy. For me, one of my favorite moments is when we go into this winding chromatic almost fled of the bumblebee type situation here. First we get this ta thing. This is where he's kind of going off on his own stuff here, uh, not as much related to the regal theme we get these winding things here in the right hand, right? Yeah. Then the sequence continues like that. The flight of the bumblebee fragment that occurs at measure 118 and 119, that terminates in that upward leap of a fourth. I know it goes on after that, but that does make me wonder if he's modifying. This is a version of the subject ending of the second part of the subject. You mean the like, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it could be. And that these eighth notes are just short version of the quarter note chromatic descent from the subject, you know. At least we know that it's based on that. Twenty-four years after J.S. Bach died, there was a baron, Gottfried von Swieten, an important man in the realm of music to whom Beethoven dedicated his first symphony, and this baron had a conversation with King Frederick of Prussia, and they talked about Bach's visit 27 years earlier. He said that Frederick characterized Bach as, "...endowed with talent superior and depth of harmonic knowledge and power of execution to any I have heard or can imagine. He said, The king is of this opinion, and to prove it to me, he sang aloud a chromatic fugue subject which he had given this old Bach, who on the spot had made of it a fugue in four parts, then in five parts, and finally in eight parts. So, well, we know that this was an exaggeration, and we know, of course, that it was three parts, and then later six parts, but not on the spot. This is a good example of how sometimes these stories can get exaggerated, and while I love Schoenberg's take, we don't know if Carl Philip Emmanuel secretly gave King Frederick this regal theme. Just another tantalizing mystery from the musical offering. And now, here is Darcy's moment from The Richer Car in Three Voices, from the first part of the musical offering. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of The Richer Car for Three Voices, or the entire musical offering, please see the links in the episode description to see the performances by the Netherlands Bach Society, of this monumental work. If you have a Moment of Bach that you love that we have not yet covered on this podcast, please send us an email, a momentofbach at gmail.com or reach out to us on one of our platforms with your idea. We always keep a list of those and go through them regularly. Okay, Christian, what's up for next week on A Moment of Bach? Next week we close out the three great Alain Gott organ chorale preludes by looking at the last of the three. We've looked at 662 and 663. This will be BWV 664. Until next time, enjoy those moments.